I'm Yamilka Rodriguez, and this is the Brand Therapist Podcast, where we come together and dive deep into the psychology of branding. We live in a new era that asks us to step up and show our individuality, learn what makes us unique and different in this world. Let's open the door to possibilities so you can win in business, life, and relationships, because everything starts with you. So excited to have you on my show, Nikki. So thank you for coming to The Brand Therapist. And with no further ado, we're just going to go ahead and get started. So before introducing yourself, I just want to ask you, tell me, because it wouldn't be a brand therapy session if we didn't talk about childhood. Tell me about your childhood and how that connects to what you do today. So this is Nikki Lanier, and I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm happy to be on your wonderful show. Gosh, so much of my childhood, what a great question. So much of my childhood absolutely informs not just what I do today, but how I do it. So I am the child of the only child of two amazing parents who were very steeped in the civil rights movement themselves, both of them. My father probably more so than my mother, and but and certainly more violently experiencing his desire to be seen as a whole human being. He was met with a lot of violence as a part of that work. And my mother, to a lesser extent, but but still similarly so. But I'm also, they went on to in their career to move in and through various higher education institutions, primarily HBCUs, historically Black colleges. That's where I grew up on historically Black college campuses. Chief among them would be Hampton University, which I consider my hometown and is actually my home university. I graduated from Hampton University. So my childhood was very much rooted in and anchored around principles associated with the plight of Black America and the desire for Black people to be to experience the fulsome experience around the American dream without a whole lot of context and without asterisk and without footnotes and Lots and lots and lots of conditions, just being able to be seen and valued in the fullness of our humanity has been a principle that I have held dear my entire life, largely because of how I grew up. I love that. So I know you started, well, fairly new business, I think for me, I know you've accomplished so much. I want to talk all about that, but tell us a little bit about your new, newfound business that you're doing and what it is, what it's all about. So Harper Slade Racial Equity Advisory is the company that I've founded. We launched in earnest in January of this year. So we're just a couple of months old. And my company helps employers and communities understand how to activate and amplify Black and Hispanic talent as a macroeconomic imperative. So you know, probably have a background in employment law and then, of course, in HR And then most recently, I worked for the Federal Reserve, arguably the world's most formidable central bank. And I did a lot of work in macroeconomic policy and monetary policy. And and it really became acutely aware of the impact, the cumulative impact of inequity, particularly as experienced by Black and Hispanic people in this country, and what the continued cost of that will be as we advance toward 2045 where that same population will become the majority in the available workforce. So I left my work with the Federal Reserve to start this company, and I work with employers all around the world. I mean, I've got clients everywhere 
because unfortunately this conundrum is a universal one. And I help advise them on how to first unpack and understand the belief systems that are at play, both in the workplace culture and in the hearts and minds of the leaders that have stewardship over that culture. So really, what is the belief system that's already in existence about the mattering of Black and Hispanic people? And then what does that belief system have to do currently with the way that we think about productivity and engagement and work by race, and therefore the way that we behave in furtherance of that thinking? And then ultimately, the policies kind of flow from all of it that are sometimes even unspoken policies the norms that govern work that really are exclusionary to Black and Hispanic voices and talent. So I kind of help unpack all of that, help employers understand what all of that is, and then how to recast new normals in the way that we believe, how we assign value one to another, and then reset and restate and declare, really, new norms associated with the inclusion, like radical inclusion of people of color at work. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> wow, I, that's that's all I have to say. I know we met, we're in the Federal Reserve and I so admired what you were doing. I actually, the first time I saw you was on stage telling your story, which was, I was just awed by it. And then we got to meet each other and other things. And so uh, this is incredible work you're doing. I mean, it's amazing work and that you had decided to leave your job to kind of start this effort. And I think this is the time for it, right? I know it it should have been long. It shouldn't even be something that we have to actually do. But unfortunately, because of everything that's happened everywhere around the world and the unfortunate happenings in the past and all those things, somebody's got to come forth and really help companies and individuals move this effort forward. So that's pretty incredible and pretty amazing. And I love how you were talking about the new normal, right? This is the new normal. And we all got to take that in and move forward with it. So let me ask you my next question, which has a lot to do with what you're doing today. So what is the Nikki Lanier brand? What is it all that personality, that brand? What is it about? I'd like to think that my brand is synonymous with authenticity and relatability and credibility related to the wares that I peddle. So what what I am selling, if you will, is an ideological construct that is in some ways really unprecedented, right? So when you think about this idea of like, I fall into the ecosystem of DEI consultants, though that's not necessarily what I do. I'm a racial equity strategist, but it falls into this ecosystem of DEI. But at its base, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, that is this idea of as a matter of course, as a matter of default, every time that we're traversing through whatever sector, whatever experience in life, that difference from the standard is automatically included, is presumptively included and presumptively assigned the fullness of humanity and the fullness of mattering. There's no record of America ever being or doing any of that, like as a matter of course. And though certainly then with racial equity, like equitably, not fairly, but equitably thinking about how we approach and embed and infuse based on race, 
into the fabric of our country, also unprecedented. So what I'm talking about, when I sell, if you will, DEI, I might as well be selling Mars. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, it's, I think that we as countrymen would like to think it's not that ethereal or far, far easier than that. It isn't. This is very complex. We're, we're jettisoning everything that we know to be true about how humans engage one to another in terms of how we have actually behaved. Our value system says something different, like our constitution and our, what we talk about on Facebook, that says something very different about who we are, but our cumulative behaviors and choices have always been about marginalization, muting, and excluding of difference. So then that went to answer your question a little bit differently. When I think of my brand, it has to be one that when I'm coming to talk about these concepts, you see me as someone who is fairly easy to connect with and believe in and want to be inspired by and authentically aligned against this work because I'm selling something that is so unconventional and so different and weird and not understandable. I also can't be that, right? I can't embody one thing and then sell something that's completely as difficult to understand and embrace and connect with. You've said that so beautifully. Like we can't, as individuals, can't sell something that we are not. And I think a lot of times we're in these jobs or in these roles where we actually are selling something we are not. And this is why we can't really sell it fully. Yep. Sometimes we don't even think about it. Like we don't even think about the who of us showing up against the what of us, which is why I almost always, and I love that you opened with the question, tell me about your childhood. I almost always start with the framing of my belief system. Because that, more than anything, informs what I do. Not what I've been trained to do, but it's it's informed. Yeah, so. I love it. This is what this is all about. Yeah. So I'm so excited to have you because this, this is the real conversation, right? This is the conversations that we need to be having, not those superficial conversations that are just like, just hit the, the surface. And then yeah. we don't realize or understand what we're doing or what we're buying. Yep. <laughs> But let me ask you this. I know you've done many things in your life, but when did you realize you had become famous? Okay, let's see. I think I think maybe when a couple of years ago, my daughter came to me and said, hey, mom, you're Googleable. I'm blessed to have been in a couple of very visible roles, like public facing visible roles that required me to, with fair regularity, demonstrate a level of conspicuousness and articulate points of view in various fora and talk about stuff. I guess that's when I kind of realized that what I espouse and who I am and the work that I do transcended my local community and was kind of getting out into ether, if if that's how we're defining. Yes. So I guess that's probably it. I love that. So Let's talk about specifically Harper's Light because I want to kind of focus on that a little bit because I love what you're doing there. So tell me, what was the fear you had to bring this out to the world? Honestly, I don't know that I had a fear of bringing it out to the world. Was there anything that was holding you back from bringing it out? I'd say probably more just the natural part of human existence, which is, oh, am I got, am I going to make money? Am I going to be able to pay my bills? Is, is this going to resonate with anyone? How am I going? You know, the, the DEI consultant space is a fairly opaque one and enti- very, very congested. 
So how do I distinguish my voice and my impact? So those kinds of things, like how do I distinguish myself in market? And then is there going to be enough volume of work to sustain, you know, my lifestyle and my family's needs and how, how I contribute at least today into my family's coffers? Those were some of the things that I thought about, but they never stymied me. And bluntly, once I made the decision, I had only made made the decision after lots and lots of prayer and fasting and seeking God and asking for real clarity and folks to kind of come into my life in alignment with me moving into this season. And all of that happened. I mean, like all of it happened. And this was very much a leap of faith. I mean, this is, I'm not the kind of entrepreneur that's like, okay, I've been planning this for years and years and years, planning my exit. I've been storing up my savings and I've got two or three clients lined up. You know, that was not my story at all. My story was after 2020 and Brianna Taylor and all of that introspection that that compelled with me, my family and my community, and then just being very thoughtful about where I can be my most useful and how I can use whatever voice and articulation I have on the urgency of this matter to really try to be helpful and and move the needle. And then, of course, so much of working with my prayer partners and just being in the Word of God, I said, well, I guess this is where I need to go. And so I did it. Like a year later, I was gone. And my I I built this practice so far on my last bonus that I had from the... (laughs) That was my seed money. And Thankfully, clients are just starting, we're starting to come in. So it's, it's great. Oh, I can't, you know, I can't imagine. I also, you know, worked in big corporation. And when I decided to do my own business, it was nerve wracking in the sense of the same, but it was like my passion. So I had to kind of try it out. I had to do it. I had to feel it out. And then, as you know, you met me when I was doing my fashion business and I switched over back to branding because I've always done branding. And I switched um, for obvious, you know, same like 2020, you know, kind of did something, I think, to all of us. And I shifted my business because I wanted to help and I help mostly women, but I wanted to help women of color to really be able to brand themselves as an individual and become famous for what they do. And I love it when other women do it and take the plunge and just go for it because it just shows how strong and powerful we are as as individuals to kind of take this on because it's not it's not easy. <laughs> it is not easy. It is hard. You know, but what I, I tell people all the time is hard, but it's just a different hard. Everything yeah. is hard. It's just about choosing your hard to the extent that I am entirely convinced that I am 1000% in purpose right now. I am living my purpose. I am living my God-given assignment. There's a lot of clarity in that. That I just actually, if I'm honest, I've never had my entire career working for other people. I have a sense of clarity around my particular brand of usefulness and how it could be potent in helping to change the world's lens on Black and Hispanic people. Even with the hard parts of it, there's just respite in knowing that whatever it is, at least I can say I am that. I am the purest form of Nikki. I am the purest form of of usefulness and helpfulness on a doctrine that has burdened this world since the beginning of time. And quite frankly, this is a part of an assignment sort of that's been given to me in utero. I mean, my parents worked in this space in their way, in their dispensation and time in the same way that I am, as did my grandmothers. And so there's just a lot that I have to rely on and get excited and motivated by to help assure that I am framing everything that I'm doing correctly. 
Oh, I love that. So I know we don't get anywhere without mentors. So tell me about your mentors and how they helped you through difficult times. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot, mostly informal. So I don't know that I've really ever decidedly cast the question out there to source and solicit mentors, but I've had folks that have helped to ripen and shape shape the way that I see myself and my talents and gifts and how to bring them to bear. And I think my most recent experience with a mentoring moment was really from a mentee of mine that gave rise to Harper Slade. And in the midst of 2020, just having received a phone call completely out of the blue, like at seven o'clock at night, asking about, she asked me about my career trajectory, my career plans, and what I intended to do while working with the Federal Reserve. And I just shared, you know, well, I guess I'll just be here forever. I mean, I like it. It's, it's a cool job and, you know, it's pays all right. And my bills, it's fine. And she just said, I feel like I got to push you on this definition of fine. And when she said, let me tell you what I observe about you, particularly now that the whole world is falling apart and that Louisville is struggling with understanding who it is vis-a-vis each of these community stakeholders. And not, it wasn't just my voice. There's so many voices that were amplified during that time. But what she encouraged me to think about was in what areas am I I'll say self-sabotaging. That's probably a little dramatic, but am I muting and diminishing my own potency for the sake of comfort? And I think it was because that call just came out of the blue, like no context, nothing. She said that God put it on her heart to call me and ask me these questions. And three hours later, I'm journaling like crazy and just kind of writing down, well, what, what would it look like if I were to step out and just to really think about where I am my most useful and where does that usefulness marry with my sense of purpose? So that's kind of how that came to be with that wonderful mentee who then became wow. a mentor. <laughs> that's incredible. And that's, I think that's how it happens, right? You don't actually sometimes ask for mentors. They come to you in different ways and, and help you through times that you don't imagine are problem times, right? You were fine. And then all of a sudden- yeah. He made you ask these questions where you were like, well, am I doing the right thing with all the knowledge and everything that you know? And, and now you're in your purpose, which I love, love, love. So let me ask you, what are the lessons learned that you've had maybe for this, but also in your past? What are the lessons that you've learned that you are now moving forward with? Particularly in the space of DEI, racial equity, I've learned two things. One, I've said before, even just like a few minutes ago, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. And that is just the power of the belief system and how easy it is. And even in the context of change management, which fundamentally DEI is, in my opinion, how easy it is for us to move quickly to what we are doing and not really spend a lot of time in what we are being. Like, who are we being that then informs what we do. In DEI, especially, we have a lot of folks that focus on the activity of it and the stuff and the thing of it without ever unpacking, yeah, but I still don't really care for black and brown people. I still don't really get them. I still don't want them in my neighborhood. I still, I mean, I'll do the thing, right? So I want to deal with it. (laughs) 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 Because that is the America country resetting Right. We've always band-aided this. Always, always, always. We've never dealt with the heart 
the fundamental belief. So what I'm becoming clearer about now that in ways that I haven't before, number one is the weight and how important it is to understand what do we truly believe about people who are different from us? And then what is that belief system cumulatively and in the moment? What's the effect and impact of that over time, over generations? So that's one thing. Wait, now ask me the question again, because I forgot my second point. Lessons learned. Okay. So yeah. So the belief system, the lessons learned, that's one of them. And the second one is the importance of listening. So listen, I always understood that academically, rarely in practice. <laughs> Clearly, because I just had to have you uh, ask me the question again, because I want to listen, I guess. I don't know. But there's so much power and that so much is revealed to you about what matters to people and where people's need sets are. And fundamentally, what do you need from me as a advisor to you on racial equity? And I find that particularly important with white males for whom these concepts almost always feel like they're not for them. They feel like this is not for me. I don't want to have to sit in a training for two hours and be made to feel bad about who I am or feel guilty about what somebody four generations back did. Like, I just don't want that. And yet that is the framing that a lot of people, a lot of white males, I think, bring to the way that they experience DEI, partly because of folks like me, we don't do it right. Like we leave them feeling that way intentionally sometimes and unintentionally, but but intentionally sometimes as well. So I spend a lot of time listening to my clients so that I can, in the entirety of the engagement, make sure that I am preserving their humanity, preserving their dignity, preserving their sense of self and affirming whatever their lived experience is and not suggesting that mine that may be foreign to them is any more important than theirs. So that listening part is super important in my work, in my life. I mean, in my marriage with my kids, I'm just finding that just really being an active, genuinely interested listener is so important to the core of relationship building and just really understanding how people work. So true. If we just listened just 10% more and take those nuggets, because in everything that we say or that people say to us, there are so many nuggets, so much richness. And if we just took a little bit of that, even like half a percent of that and put it back out in the world, it'd be such a beautiful, beautiful world. But let me ask you this. So what is the reward that you have received? from this work? What I'm most pleased by is when I have clients that tell me that they see this work differently and that they are examining themselves very differently and inviting in a committed and not compliant way, different experiences and new norms into their heart. It's just incredibly rewarding because I think, especially with this work that I do, there's so much that is about the delicate framing I mean, it's, it's this interesting balance between the urgency and the clarity and the, the weight. I mean, this is a very heavy, this is heavy, heavy, heavy work, but also balanced with being delicate and having grace with the human vessel that is to be receiving all of these new messages, all of these new ideals. So I love it when clients tell me that they feel like they're walking away understanding themselves vis-a-vis this work and challenging the way that they have been manifesting beliefs unknowingly to them. Like that's huge. And, And the reason why that's huge to me, because 
this for me, though this work that I do happens in the workplace and inside of communities and structures, this is a human resetting proposition that transcends work if I do it right, if we do this right. I just happen to get you at work because that's where everybody's going. Everybody's going to a place called work at some point. So that's where I'm going to, I'm going to get you while you're in there. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> you go, I'm, I'm going to get you. So then you learn some stuff at work that then make, helps you parent differently and show up in community differently and think about your relationship with your neighbors differently. Think about policy differently. You may even how you approach policy making differently. Who gets invited to your house for Thanksgiving and who's invited to the dinner parties and who you vacation with very differently. Like, so that's what I want. That's my jam right there. I love that. So what's next for you? I know, I know you just started this. You're probably like, what are you asking me, Melka? But how do you see your future five years from now? Yeah. So I'm, I'm super clear about that. Thank you for asking. Um, Harper Slade, I intend for Harper Slade to be a global asset to be a company that operates with presence across the globe, with employees who are focused in how to help communities understand how to reset and recast economically equitable norms for Black and Hispanic people, a division that focuses on the workplace talent development and the advisory systems, and a whole other uh, area that talks about, that focuses on like events and artistry. And I know that you would love this, but there's something to be said about the way we consume challenge through art. So people sit in the seat of absorbers and consumers of art, expecting to be changed, expecting to emote and to reflect and to be introspective. We don't do that at work. That's what I'm selling. I'm selling the opportunity to do all of that at work, which is also why it's become so hard because I'm asking you to be something that work has already told you is not welcome here. Like for years, we've said, don't bring your emotions up in here. Don't bring, right. Don't, don't do all that. Just make the widgets. And now we're like, oh, no, 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 no. Bring it all. Bring it all. Come everything that you are, which is, I think, the right thing to do. But it's the new thing to do. Art, on the other hand, has always been that. And it's a powerful, powerful way for us to think about. So I see Harper Slate as this kind of global company that has these amazing divisions with incredible employees and leaders who are doing work with, with organizations across the world, even though we're, what, four months old, I guess, at this point. That's my goal. And to see that within five years. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> so where can we find you? Where can we find, if we want to talk to you or hire you or whatever that is, how do we get in touch with you? Yeah, lots of ways. I'm super active on social media. So Harper Slate is on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, as am I on each of those platforms. My website is www.harperslade.com. Those are really great ways to reach out to me. Otherwise, more directly, admin at harperslade.com is the email address to, to get on calendar and get this party started. So there's lots of ways to plug in. Thank you so much for spending this moment with me. I so appreciate it. I know you're kind of going off to the races as we call it in Louisville, Kentucky. But anyway, I love this time with you. I learn so much about you every time we meet and I so appreciate you and I hope to see you soon again. Thank you for the opportunity. I love having any conversation I can with you. I adore you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brand Therapist. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. 
If you'd like to connect with me on social, you can find me at Yamoka Rodriguez Branding, Bespoke Branding Agency, or email me at yamoka at yamoka.com. Thanks for listening.